Well, good morning, church. Would you please be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3? This morning we turn a page in Luke. We'll be looking at a new section, beginning with the story of John's ministry coming out of the wilderness. We'll look at the first nine verses of chapter 3 this morning, and as you read along with me, remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of our God. So he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. But indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus far is the reading the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we always do, we'll open up with a request for God's help on our time this morning. Father, in the song that we just sang, we worship you with the words, show us Christ. But now we ask you to hear that also as our prayer. Because what we really need this morning, every one of us, here in this room or providentially hindered, watching from home, every one of us needs to see Christ this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. A leaf was riven from a tree. I mean to fall to earth, said he. The west wind rising made him veer. Eastward, said he, I now shall steer. The east wind rose with greater force, said he. T'were wise to change my course. With equal power they contend. He said, my judgment I suspend. Down died the winds, the leaf elate, cried, I've decided to fall straight. First thoughts are best, that's not the moral. Just choose your own and will not quarrel. However your choice may chance to fall, you'll have no hand in it at all. Now to some of you, that may sound like a charming Calvinist allegory. And in truth, the Lord does control all things. From the names of the elect written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world down to the movement of every microscopic dust mite dancing imperceptibly in a sunbeam. In every sense of the word, the sovereignty of Yahweh of hosts is just a given. The interesting thing about the poem that I just read is that it came out of a very unique kind of dictionary. It's called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce. And it's under the heading, Decide. Satan can't change the fact that God is sovereign in all things. 
but he certainly will try to exploit that to his own advantage. What's the point in choosing Christ anyway? God knows who are his. It doesn't matter what you do. His people produce fruit without even thinking about it. And look at you. You can't even say one nice thing about your spouse. How cruel that God doesn't give you the freedom to make your own decisions. You have no hand in it at all. Now this is slanderous, blasphemous, and worth less than a Texas cow patty. But unbelievers and even Christians buy this kind of stuff all the time. We'll use whatever excuse we can muster to keep us from choosing obedience to God. And God in His kindness likes to send people to help us. People like John the Baptist who drop a napalm on all our evasive tactics. He was commissioned to excavate the rubble and eviscerate the obstacles and elevate the uneven terrain to impeccable smoothness so that no excuse would stand in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All mankind would be ready. They would have to face Christ plainly. And they would have to decide. They would have to choose. This morning we begin section 2 of Luke's gospel. By way of reminder, chapters 1 to 2 functions primarily as a preface to Luke, introducing our two main characters, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Our text today begins with chapter 3 and runs through chapter 4, verse 13. It serves as kind of a passing of the torch, where John briefly fulfills his function of preparing that way for Jesus, and after which he will fade into the background with seldom a mention. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Well, church, these first two verses in our passage this morning function as kind of a historical recalibration of sorts. For the reader, to this point, you need to understand that we've been in the B.C.s, but now we've officially moved in the New Testament into the A.D.s. We're around 28 to 29 A.D. to be more precise, probably winter of 28, spring of 29, maybe somewhere in that neighborhood. At the start of chapter 3, Luke rattles off a list of seven different names. He walks us through these important figures of the time. The first name he mentions, Tiberius Caesar, who was the stepson of Augustus Caesar and second in line for Rome's throne. Augustus' own son died in battle and Tiberius was appointed emperor after Augustus died. With all his power... He ruled Palestine from a distance and had very little involvement in the area during the earthly life of Jesus. The next to be mentioned is Tiberius' appointed governor, Pontius Pilate, who, as you know, would come to play a massive role later in the narrative. The Roman Empire maintained its vast regional control through the use of legates and prefects. A legate was a military man in charge of a portion of the army and a prefect, or procurator, as they were sometimes called, was a financial officer in charge of taxation and keeping the peace, which seems like a bit of a contradiction in terms, if you ask me. Pontius Pilate was the latter of these two. He was a despised tax-collecting prefect. Next in the list, Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great, ruled Israel and parts of Syria during Jesus' boyhood. He was mentioned earlier in Luke. And he divided his rule into the three different members of his family. Herod Antipas, his biological son. Philip, who was a half-son. And Lysanias was a nephew of Herod's. As governor of Galilee, Herod Antipas will come up frequently later on in the Gospel of Luke. Finally, Luke mentions the names of two high priests, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the more widely known 
as he will preside over Jesus' sham trial and execution later on in this gospel. What's interesting here, and it's easy to miss in English, is that in Greek, the term high priesthood is singular. It's not the high priesthoods of Annas and Caiaphas. It's the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you can't have two high priests at the same time. A priest could have retained his title for life, as U.S. presidents do, president so-and-so, though they're not currently serving. I think what's actually happening, though, here is Luke is pulling back the curtain to showing us some of the politics of the religious culture of Judaism at the time. He's telling us who is pulling the levers of Jewish religious control. Though there was one high priest during Jesus' adult years, Caiaphas, Annas was behind the scenes saying, let's do this, and let's do this, and thanks for consulting me. Now what you need to see this morning in these first two verses is a distinguished list of names. Oh, and don't forget, there's one more character in that list. John the Baptist. Camel hair wearing, locust eating, slightly abrasive personality, John the Baptist. Walking out of the wilderness, not from a palace or the capital of a global empire or the chair of religious authority in Israel. He comes from the same place all of Israel's prophets come from, from the wilderness, from the sticks. Of all those listed, all the names that I just went through and all the prestige and all the pomp and all the circumstance... There was only one name mentioned that Luke said, and the word of God came to that man. Let's just stop for a moment and consider that this is one of God's favorite stories to tell. God loves to tell stories like this. The underdog from out of the wilderness, the Savior, the one who's going to come and help Israel turn back to the Lord their God. You might think of an excommunicated Egyptian prince coming out of the wilderness 40 years in exile. You might think of a Moabite widow from the land of the unrighteous carrying an ancestor of the promised Messiah. You might think of a boy given as an infant to the service of the tabernacle who would grow up one day to judge Israel. Or the youngest of eight sons coming out of the countryside from tending his father's sheep to slay a mighty giant. In Persian exile, a young Benjamite girl with no parents, adopted by her uncle who would be raised up to be a queen and save all of the Jews. Greatest of all, the scandalously born son of a carpenter from an obscure village in Galilee called Nazareth. Now consider our similar situation this morning, church. All the power structures of the world are turned against the church of Christ. The church is at war with itself in constant fighting and fracture, flaunting what should be in-house disputes across the internet in view of the judgment of the unrighteous. Wickedness is rampant. Women running up and down the sidewalks in their underwear while men do the same. The judicial system is corrupt. The police fear to protect the people they swore to serve. The invasion at the borders increases daily while countries' leaders busy themselves trying to incarcerate their next opponent. Drugs and gangs and murders and suicides and sex trafficking are just daily headlines. Just this last week I read about an elementary school's first grade curriculum which teaches children as young as six years old about what they call sexual play. And it even gives instruction on cleanup after an act of sodomy to six-year-olds with cartoon examples. Everything is going the wrong way. So little hope. And then, what does God love to do? A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. A crier who is unashamed of the truth, who brings the world to decision. Revival breaks out and churches are planted and baby murder is outlawed and Vanity Fair gets closed up for another 100 years. 
J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, let us learn never to despair about the cause of God's truth, however black and unfavorable its prospects may appear. At the very time when things seem hopeless, God may be preparing a mighty deliverance. At the very season when Satan's kingdom seems to be triumphing, the little stone cut without hands may be on the point of crushing it to pieces. The darkest hour of the night is often that, that which precedes the day. So the 2020 COVID moment was God's public uncovering of the American heart, especially the church. We look back on it now and we see how far we've fallen from God's will. And though some have repented at this point, most things, it seemed, just keep getting worse. But beloved, know this, we may be on the cusp of what is called in future days the hinge point of our generation when God sends another voice who clears away the smoke of our apathy and indifference and we are faced with Elijah's unavoidable question. How long will you be limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And these Elijahs who come will make way, make a straight way again for the church of Jesus. Speaking of Elijah, look at verse 3. He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message wasn't confined to his head, heart, and home as the liberals and feminists today would have liked. It was delivered out in the open, and his message was not a people pleaser. A baptism, you could say, that corresponded with repentance in the hope of the forgiveness of sins. It's a summary of verse 3. In order to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus, to begin to foster in hearts a desire for the full atonement of the sins of God's people, and looking forward to the day when the remission of those sins would officially be given, John told them that they needed to change their minds, that they needed to think again. And we've talked about the Greek word metanoia before. Meta means change, noia meaning to think. So to repent is to change the way that you think. Or you could say, if you use the Latinized term, repentance, to think again. This wouldn't have been such a provocative message if John was a minister to the Gentiles. But you notice here in the text, he's talking right to Israel. This wouldn't be very controversial if he were only telling Gentiles, you need to be baptized. Proselyte baptism was a part of a Gentile's cleansing ritual to be brought into the assembly of Yahweh. But he's telling Israel, you need to be made clean. You're not clean enough to be in God's family. You need to be made clean. You need to be converted. You need to change your mind about the things that you think make you right with God. Because you're wrong. He said this with zero shame or embarrassment. He said, here's the line. Now choose your side. That was the message of John. Here's the line. Choose your side. Church, I'll stop at this point to say, don't be afraid to say hard things. Don't be afraid to say hard things to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, council members. Repent of that tendency in you that longs to be liked by others. Just die to it. He who reproves a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Proverbs 28, 23. Some of you here have been avoiding that hard conversation with relatives. Take the next opportunity that God gives you and speak the truth. Speak it in love. Bring no offense but the gospel of Christ. But just say it. For the sake of their souls, just tell them the truth. There's someone in this church that God has put on your heart to have a hard conversation with. Another covenant member at Christ the King. Go with humility. Make sure to ask good questions. Make sure you know 
what you're going to say and that this lands with the truth. But stop leaving the truth on the shelf and telling yourself you did your job. Over the last few weeks, I read or listened to three different men, three different parts of America, who remembered earlier in life having to give a hard word. And when they gave this hard word, all three of these men said that they were immediately ridiculed for it and then slandered away from their presence. They were talked bad about with no chance to defend themselves. And then years later, three separate men, three separate places across America, said that some of those that they reproved reached back down and thanked them. Some even apologized for their initial misunderstandings. And we had a brother reach out to us two weeks ago with whom I and some other men at the church had a difficult word with. Though he was initially frustrated, he called to say that he now understood why we had said what we said, and he was grateful for our principal dealings with him. Proverbs 28, 23. Reproof brings more favor. Flattery, not so much. Reproof, more favor. Again, the words of Ryle get at the root of this. Well would it be for the church of Christ if it possessed more plain-speaking men, like John the Baptist in these latter days, a morbid dislike to strong language, an excessive fear of giving offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are unhappily too much the characteristics of the modern Christian man. There is no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or in applying smooth epithets to damnable sins. There are two texts, Ryle says, which are too much forgotten by Christian men. In one it is written, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. In the other it is written, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now before we go on to this quotation from Isaiah, I need to address an important question that comes at us from the text at this point. How was John's baptism different from Jesus' baptism? The short answer is, some things change and some things stay the same. Some things never change. One thing is clear. Baptism does not change. The call to immerse the nations in the name of the triune God remains our task today. See Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Another thing that doesn't change is the direct connection of baptism and repentance. In order to partake of the ordinance of baptism, one must repent. John's message to the crowd was, repent and be baptized. Jesus' message in all four Gospels was, repent and believe the Gospel. And it was followed by baptism. Peter's message at Pentecost and the ministry of the apostles in Acts and the missionary work of Paul and his companions was repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. Repentance and baptism always go together. But there's a major change from John's baptism to the New Testament baptism that we see, especially later on in Acts. And it can be summarized by the words foretold and fulfilled. Foretold and fulfilled. R.C. Sproul says that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Now you may be thinking, but this is the New Testament, right? We are currently in the pages of the New Testament, but the New Covenant, and remember that testament is just another word for covenant, Remember that the new covenant has yet to be inaugurated. These people are still in that transition period from the old into the new. Jesus said that the law and the prophets would reign until John, meaning up to and through John's life and ministry. And he said that none of the prophets were greater than John. So John, being the greatest of the Old Testament prophets was performing a baptism that at this point was still looking forward to Jesus. It was foretelling of Christ. It was preparing the way for the coming of Christ, 
But Jesus had not come and fulfilled his ministry yet. So John would ask his baptism candidates, repent, change the way that you think, so that you can be ready when Jesus does get here. So you can be ready to see the salvation of God. Verse 6 of our text. But when all eyes did finally see him, and they were saved, they were baptized into the fulfillment or the fullness or the completion of God's plan of salvation. Every one of them was baptized not just with the water, but with the Holy Spirit of God. I ask you this morning, friend, neighbor, visitor, family member, have you been in, all, have you been in church all of your life and heard about this Messiah, but you've never repented of your sins? Or have you repented and seen Christ as the only satisfaction of your sins, but you've never been immersed in His name before? Perhaps there is a lost person here today. Perhaps you're hearing this message, something like this, for the first time. You finally see Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, and you're even now in your mind turning from that sin. Won't you come and be baptized as a sign of your obedience to Him? Not with a partial understanding, not still looking for the Savior to come, who is yet to send His Spirit into your heart, but a completed one. One in which repentance and faith in Jesus are fully present. Come and be baptized and join our new covenant community here at Christ the King. The last Sunday of this month is Baptism Sunday, and you are welcome to come in Christ. We're not interested in numbers here. We're interested in obedience to Jesus. Come to Christ. Come repenting. Come and be baptized. Well, the next section, verses 4 through 6, is in all caps in some Bibles. And it's a quotation from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. This is proof that John is the fulfillment of the Elijah to come. Our text says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight, the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Here's a little background on the latter portion of the book of Isaiah. Chapters 40 to the end of the book, to chapter 66, deal primarily with the promises of God made while his people are in Babylonian captivity. Repeatedly, we're given hints that a second exodus is just around the corner. Those of you who went through Ezra and Nehemiah series with us remember how often that theme of the second exodus came up. And yet, here God's people are. They're back in the promised land, 400 plus years after that hoped for second exodus, and they're in a heap of trouble all over again. They're... A, ruled by a godless emperor and a sleazy prefect, an apostate governor and two power-hungry priests. And the community around them is rapidly apostatizing. God, can we have another exodus? Third time's the charm? Well, they get more than another exodus. Out of the wilderness comes a voice. A voice which spoke of a salvation that would eclipse all of the other Old Testament rescues. A voice foretelling of a whole earth excavation. Imagery that is far too comprehensive for just another momentary and local deliverance of God's people. Mountains have to be completely leveled. Whole canyons have to be filled in entirely. Everything prepared. The entire globe made straight and smooth because the king is coming. The king is coming to save his people. John's message, though bringing hope to some, actually has two parts. This massive shakeup of the world indeed prepares the way for all flesh to see the salvation of God. But it also brings along with it its biblical theological partner or handmaiden. And that is judgment. The true Israel will this time finally and forever be saved. 
Isaiah 42, verse 16. I will lead the blind by a way that they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, and the rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. The lowly, the blind, the sick, those who Jesus said need a physician. They're the ones that God is grading the world for. So nothing will stop them from coming and seeing Christ. But for those self-exalted souls living only for themselves, judgment is coming. For He has laid low those who settle on high, the exalted city. He brings it low. He brings it to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample on it. The feet of the afflicted and the steps of the poor. The proud, the exalted, they're the ones that are getting bulldozed out of the way. Unless, unless they repent. Today that same choice is right before us. Submit to Christ or be removed. That choice is right before all of us. And it happens all over the world in many places, thousand times a day. People are presented with the choice. Turn before it's too late. I remember an episode of The Haunted Cosmos recently where Brian and Ben were telling stories about angels and how God seems to use them even in present day. They mentioned one story about a man who was imprisoned by the communists in the gulags of Siberia for being an outspoken Christian. I think they said he had been locked up for 20 or 30 years, a very long time. Anyway, the Soviet Union eventually fell apart and all the prison camps were being emptied. And this Christian man walked up to the table where he was to receive permission to leave. The soldier in charge, however, wouldn't let him go. All the other prisoners were being released. But because of this man's commitment to Jesus, he was told that he would never see the outside world again. At this, the prisoner, in a humble but loving way, informed the soldier in charge that there was an angel standing right behind him with a drawn sword, ready to strike him down if he did not sign his release. To which the guard chuckled and asked for the next prisoner. And immediately, on the spot, he died. And then the next guard in line hurriedly grabbed the discharge note and signed it. <laughs> the wrath to come, church, has already started coming. And unless there's repentance... All will likewise perish, falling like the mountains. Let me say one important thing before I go on to the last three verses this morning. Repentance is not salvation. Let me say that again. Repentance is not salvation. The only thing that has the power to save any damned soul is the blood of Jesus Christ. Your repentance cannot save you, no matter how sincere. Justification comes through the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, not through repentance. If you are truly to be saved, you must place all of your hope and all of your faith, not in the quality of your repentance, but in Jesus Christ alone. And what I mean by this is don't spend hours each day pining away in your thoughts as to whether or not you really gave it your all when you repented. You're looking at your own works. Stop and look to Christ who can save. Don't hear me taking away with one hand what I've been offering with the other. No one in human history has ever been saved apart from an act of repentance. No one has. If you're ever to see Christ's blood is sufficient, you have to change your mind. Your mind and your heart have to be transformed. They have to be changed. J.C. Ryle, again, says, Saved souls are penitent souls. And saving faith in Christ and true repentance towards God are never found asunder. But repentance is about looking away from something to something else. 
And the thing that you're to look at is not yourself. It's Christ and Christ alone. In John's day, those who repented, looking forward to the Messiah, would be ready when He came. And those who didn't or pretended to look by feeling sorry for themselves or tried to impress others around them or looked in their hearts for answers, God ultimately swept them away. I ask you this morning, which are you? Isaiah said that the mountains would come down and the valleys be lifted up. And all the debris which could hinder progress to Christ would be removed. This next section, verses 7 to 14, explains how John communicated that message to his people. Isaiah's the prophecy, and he gives us that vivid prophetic language. But here in verses 7 to 14, we get the outworking of that. Here's what John actually said to make the mountains come down and to make the valleys level. This morning, we're only going to look at the first three verses of that section, verses 7 through 9, where he speaks of judgment for unrepentance. You can imagine those mountains coming down. Next week, Jeremy Mefford is going to bring us a message on verses 10 to 14, where John makes straight paths, describing what the fruit of a repentant life looks like. In verse 7, though, if you'll look along with me. So he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Now, let me pause here for just a second. The phrase, he was saying, indicates ongoing activity in the past. So this isn't just a one-time message of John. What he's getting ready to say is not just one thing that Luke heard of a testimony of somebody who said, I heard John say this one thing. This was a regular occurrence for John. This was part of his regular Teaching, and what did he say? Continuing in verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You heard that right. As the crowds would come out to John, in order to prepare the way for Jesus, very clearly concerned with the felt needs of his hearers, This was John's consistent starting point. This was his go-to. He called his audience the sons of snakes. This would never fly today. Pastors all over America would squirm in their pulpits, apologizing for this shocking behavior. Well, I wouldn't be attracted to a Jesus with that kind of message. Let's just stick to the gospel. Interesting. In order to passive-aggressively bring back this wayward brother, all the pastors in America would Amazon gift John the Baptist copies of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People with a little note inside the box that says, Hey, bro, you should read this. Praise God for men unconcerned with keeping the status quo and tickling ears. The whole building is compromised. It has to come down. The whole tree is rotted from the core. So the axe is set to the root. A small remodel or a gentle trimming is not going to cut it in order to make way for Christ in His new kingdom. You're going to have to start over. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, wounds, and raw wounds. From Isaiah chapter 1. Now, if you compare this message with Matthew's gospel, particularly chapter 3, verse 7, you'll notice that these words were, at times, pointed at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke, however, extends the target to the general audience, the general onlooker who was coming. He said to the crowds, you brood of vipers. The religious leadership of that day was certainly out of line, and they certainly came out to hear his message, and he certainly pointedly use this message in their direction. But leadership 
reflects the people that they lead. And so before John gets to the solution, he asks them what is in a sense a probing question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you coming here? What do you expect to hear from me? Do you understand what this baptism really means? Do you understand how high the stakes actually are? Lost person hearing my voice this morning, do you understand what you're fleeing from? The eternal wrath of a holy and good God. You're not fleeing to permission to walk the communion aisle each week. You're not fleeing so that people will think better of you. You'll have an in-group. You're not fleeing so that you can be part of an exciting and vibrant community. No, you're fleeing from the everlasting flames reserved for those who persist in rebellion against a holy God. Lost person, do you understand that today? If you do, then come to Christ. Come now, even while I'm still speaking. Come and be saved. In verse 8, John says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, I mentioned that Jeremy Mefford is going to dig more into the fruit next week. But we can at least say this at this point. This is a truism. This is something that you can take to the bank. Those who repent will continue a pattern of repentance. Those who repent become themselves repenters. And in doing so, they bear fruit. They bear fruit for God's glory. I like the Amplified Bible's rendering of this verse. Verse 8 in the Amplified Bible says, Therefore produce fruit that is worthy of and consistent with your repentance. That is, live changed lives, turn from sin, and seek God and His righteousness. Every Christian, in every place, at all times, will have to continue repenting. Everyone. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian they are, how old they are. Every Christian will have to keep with repentance. Fathers will. Mothers will. Children, managers, employees, politicians, and lawyers. Yes, even elders will, at times, have to repent to their congregations. And I need to do that this morning. A couple of weeks ago at our monthly psalm sing, I made some comments that were inappropriate. Things that I am grieved for having said. And for those of you who were there and heard me, I ask you to forgive me for that. It is a good saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's what John's ministry of repentance was all about. It was about leveling the ground, leveling the playing field. So what kind of debris is he clearing? What's the rubble that he's getting out of the way? What are those crooked ways and rough places that he's going to make straight? Well, God knows our hearts. And he knows that fallen men will be tempted to bring in some other standard of righteousness in order to avoid the hard work of repenting. We don't like repentance. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It's hard. It's not fun to admit to somebody, making sure to look in their eyes and tell them, I was wrong, and I sinned against a holy God and you, and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And asking for forgiveness, too. That's part of it. Please forgive me. So John said to the Jews, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. This may have been the most frustrating thing that the Jews had to hear from John. I am a physical descendant of the man who received the promises. What do you mean I can't count on that connection? I am one of God's chosen people. I have special standing in this community. But even if you were the offspring of the greatest of the patriarchs, Will you have absolution from the wrath of God? Under the old covenant, your blood relations would guarantee you membership in the Israelite community. But physical birth doesn't grant you membership in the new covenant family of Jesus. Only new birth does that. 
Jeremiah says that all in the new covenant know the Lord from Jeremiah 31. That's what makes the new covenant so much better than the old. Have you ever considered that most of the old covenant community today is in hell? You ever thought about that? Husbands, wives, children, parents, servants, slaves, sojourners, and proselytes in hell today. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, Paul says to the Romans, it is the remnant that will be saved. Why? It almost doesn't seem fair. Because since the foundation of the world, to this day, and until Christ returns, the only thing that saves is Jesus Christ. That's it. If you lived before Christ, you were saved looking forward to Him. And if you lived after Christ, as we do, you're saved looking back to Him in repentance and faith. No more rubble, no more excuses, a clear line in the sand, the decisive point that I spoke about back at the introduction. Not even a God-fearing family can save you from hell. To emphasize this, John points to some stones on the ground, inanimate objects, having no connection to Israel of any kind, things without life. But he makes this point, it is God who gives life. It's God, it's not Abraham and Sarah, who through a miracle of childbirth, biological childbirth gave life, it's not even through that act that life is given. It's through the miracle of God giving life. God can raise the dead heart. God can change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So who are the children of God anyway? John 1, 11-13 says, He came to what was His own. That is Jesus. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not those born into your home, but those born into his home through the gospel of Jesus. Romans 9 verse 8 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as His descendants. This is a hard saying. And as parents, we want assurance, especially for our children. The Word of God, however, could not be more clear here. They can have absolute assurance by trusting Jesus. In order for John to be clear and to clear the way for the Messiah, any cause for stumbling, any inadequate hope, all of it must be moved away. All of it must be done away with. And children who are listening to me now, let me say this to you. Your parents' faith will not save you. It will not. Only Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. So trust in the work of Christ. Trust Him, no matter how young you are. The Bible says from the least to the greatest, you can know the Lord. So know Him. I'll conclude this morning's message with John's final warning in verse 9. He says, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John said that judgment day is coming. When is it coming, John? How much time have I got left? John doesn't say. Many of these folks would die of disease or by the sword or at the hands of the Romans. If they lived long enough, they would have died in the fall of Jerusalem. But John's message is clear. What he says to them is, the axe is right there. And he doesn't mean the axe is laid at the tree and it's ready to start chopping the language here is more vivid than that. Chunks have already been taken out of the tree. It's the very core of that tree. You can imagine there's a sinew holding it together. One more swing is all it'll take. Judgment for everyone will come sooner than anticipated. But don't forget this, beloved. John's message is not just about judgment. It's about hope. It's about salvation in Christ. At the acceptable time, Paul said, God listened to us, and on the day of salvation, 
God helped us. He says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God controls salvation from beginning to end. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as he is revealed to us in the Bible alone, and this amounts all to the glory of God alone. And that day of salvation that is offered to you is today. That's what's been given. And don't forget this. God uses means. God uses means. Commentator Daryl Bach said, real repentance manifests itself in concrete action. Now that you've heard the strong words of John, you've been presented with this crossroads between salvation and judgment. Lost person, what will you choose this morning? Saved covenant member at Christ the King, have you been looking to yourself for assurance and hope of your salvation? Change your mind and look again to Christ. The job site has been cleared, the cornerstone laid, the new temple of God is already rising up towards heaven. Yahweh calls all the world to repent, believe on Christ, and bear glorious fruit to make his house ready for his final coming. So go forward, church. Go forward by faith in Christ and continue paving the way for the return of our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it brings us to that necessary question. Who is Jesus? Is he king? Is he Lord? Is he just some spiritual teacher? Is he what my friends talk about? Is he what my parents talk about? Is he what my family talks about? Or is he my savior? And my King, oh Lord, I pray, as we've prayed many, many times, that every heart in this church would come face to face with that question, from the least to the greatest, and everyone would repent and choose Christ. That Jesus would be King of every family member in every home, extended family member, adopted family member, every single one, that all would choose Jesus. And Lord, would you help us who are in Christ, who are struggling, who have had difficult weeks and are facing difficult times ahead to look to Christ and to be assured our salvation is set. His banner over us is love. And that will never change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.